be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. In this universe altogether. That's it is right. We're here. In the same room. Our visual cues, are, our audio cues are all matched and synced. We sound, we sound different. I even hear myself now just sounding different. We can look at each other in the eyes without seeing weird electronic glitching. But I look into your eyes and I just get lost in a world of film. Oh, we- Glenn. You can all get lost in a world of film with us from the 2SER studio once again. Yes, this is our very first uh, recording back from the studios where everything is happening all at once. Because we'll be covering everything everywhere all at once, at once, imminently, shortly, Yeah. now. But yeah, um, we've done a few in-person recordings since the before times, um, all at the podcast space in Glenn's working space. The Commons in Chippendale, great spot. Yeah, so now uh, we're actually in the 2SER studio. Was it 2020 or 2019 was the last time we were here? Uh, it would have been early 2020. Yeah, damn. I was not having a midlife crisis. That's when we were here. Now I am having one because I'm turning 30 this year. Very soon. Time oh, is, poor uh, you. Yeah. What was, what, was the, what was the last film we covered in person? The Invisible Man? Really? Possibly. <laughs> wow, yeah, because that film was uh, March by the COVID pandemic. It's really good. I've since been to, had spent time in Jerogong and watched, looked at the house. I took a photo of myself when I wasn't in the photo and called myself the Invisible Man outside the house. Thought, no one wants to be in the Invisible Man after that movie, though. <laughs> no, no, but I... But Glenn, you are the Invisible Man. I mean, your forehead is always visible, but you are the Invisible Man otherwise. <laughs> these are in-jokes. These, these, these are in-jokes. So, um, The Invisible Man is a film about a terrible, terrible person, um, Rodney Skinner, the perpetrator. The perpetrator, the protagonist of the original H.G. Wells novel, has many more shades of grey. Anyway, that's not what we're covering this week. Just before we get into everything, everywhere, all at once, at once, some festivals that are happening around town. The Fantastic Film Festival Australia is screening now in Sydney and Melbourne at the Ritz Cinemas in Sydney. The Tasmanian Breath of Fresh Air Film Festival is screening now in person and online. The Spanish Film Festival was screening at Palace Cinemas around the country. I recommend the Norton Street venue in particular for that. Did you catch official competition now? I was oh, I was in Melbourne and the Melbourne opening night was Thursday. The Sydney opening night was Tuesday. I came back from Melbourne on Wednesday. Alas. So no, alas. Right. Was it good? Um, I missed it as well, but uh, I heard it was fun. Um, I'm really keen to see uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair, which is on uh, Friday at Fantastic Film Fest. Has anyone heard about that one? No, but uh, if it's Friday, I might join you. Yeah, it's a Sundance movie, which um, is apparently innovative horror. So I don't know if, like, a creepy pasta inspired digital horror. So I don't know if I can convince Virat to come for this sort of thing. Second, I saw X, which I quite liked. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And I was able to live with that. Very different from It Happened at the World's Fair, the Elvis film from the 50s. Very different. Right, right. <laughs> um, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, which is based in Melbourne, is also screening a series online. The Sydney World Film Festival was happening from tomorrow the sydney science fiction film festival is having an event tonight um may the fourth be with you um sunning sun film festival are screening online and at the beautiful yarraville cinemas in yarraville melbourne at the sun theater which i just visited one of my favorite cinemas in the country the sydney south african film festival starts on the weekend kino sydney has a short film night on sunday night so get your flicks in and also on Sunday, there is a Static Vision event in Sydney. Very cool film collective you can check out. We're also getting a lot of news about the Sydney Film Festival. We'll be attending the launch in a couple of weeks and covering all the films that are coming out from there. Some have already been released and the festival's kicking off on June 8th through 19th. And you can get all those details on festivals.com and via our show. A lot of festivals coming up, more happening in person, which is very cool and exciting. Yeah, we're going to uh, pretend COVID never happened. 
press boldly forward until we hear about the next scary new variant outbreak. Depending on the outcome of the election. Um, <laughs> and now, yes, we'll be, uh, we won't be covering that at all. That's depressing. Thank God. It's the title of a new movie called Election. There was, a, what's 24 years now since, has it been 24 years since election? The, uh, yeah. yeah, and there's also a great Hong Kong movie uh, from like 50, 17 years ago called Election. And, yeah. Talking about Hong Kong movies, uh, John Wu is remaking The Killer for Peacock, apparently. Oh, really? Yes. That's weird. Yeah, Irma Vep is being remade by Olivia Assayas with Alicia Vikander instead of Maggie Chung. Uh, okay. Not, ex- cool. not as exciting, but yeah. So, I like Alicia Vikander. There's yeah, a lot happening in the movie world. The first photos of the Ken and Barbie film with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling have been so, released. Yeah, this I'm, looks great. It looks beautiful. Um, the production design looks amazing. It's great to go. It's a new film covered with Noah Baumbach. I'm sure like they could write a fun little rom-com in their sleep. I'm sure it'll be really cute. I'm, I'm keen. I'm, I'm keen. More keen for a lot of stuff that's coming out now, except for... So we're covering a film this week that is about a multiverse. It's not a, a Marvel film. It's not Doctor Strange. You know, we're actually recording this right now as the Doctor Strange press preview is on. We've elected to record this instead and skip out on that film. So Our, our loyalties are with A24 yeah. and not with uh, Disney. Don't look forward to coverage of Doctor Strange. My Marvel approach has been if the reviews are really good or if it's a director I'm interested in. And Raimi ticks the second yes. box, but I just saw an interview clip last night where he said, you know, the job for me here wasn't really to impress my sensibility on this and make a really balls out Sam Raimi film. It was really just to adapt my own style to the Marvel formula. And I thought, oh, okay. Oh, that's sad. There's no reason to, for me to look forward to this. Can I say, we already have Marvel adaptations from Sam Raimi. They're great. Yes. Go back and watch those. There's yeah. three of them, and two of them are really, really, really good. I don't understand why he's come back to do just a typical Marvel film, for it, basically, mm. in his own words. But Everything Everywhere All at Once it is, has a bit of a Marvel connection, actually. It's executive produced by... Uh, yeah, the Russos, who were also responsible for some of the best episodes of Community and fairly some of the best Marvel films. It is directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinart of Swiss Army Man, and it stars Michelle Yeoh, Stephanie Hsu, Kehu Kwan, James Hong... Jamie Lee Curtis, which we'll get into, she's she's recognisable. Yeah. And no, I did have a moment of, oh, it's her. It took me a few minutes, actually. I'll give her credit. Well disguised. And this is a film about a multiverse, a many, many infinite multiverse. It is starring Michelle Yeoh, who runs a laundromat with her husband. They have a young daughter, and their father lives upstairs. She's in the process of doing her taxes and getting in some trouble with the authorities. However... Uh, someone from an alternate, claiming to be from an alternate universe, who appears to be a husband but has a very different personality and comes in and says, we need your help because you are here to save everything. And from there, it is a dive into a multiverse and very creative ways of staging a multiverse. And uh, import- I, I, I characterize this as a combination of the first Matrix film, Rick and Morty, specifically Interdimensional Cable, yep. and 70s Doctor Who. I'm specifically referencing 70s Doctor Who for the production design and the type of acting and bravado of the actors, because it really pulpy does... Pulpy sci-fi? There's pulpy sci-fi fantasy. I'd say I extend it to fantasy as well. This was a lot of fun. The idea of a multiverse rendered in a non-flashy way, like in The Good Place, where transitions can be simple and intuitive, and as we're classically... Uh, broad to understand them, which means that the emphasis and budget can be on the stars and the action and some of the other production design. Um, I think it was a little long, but I, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I liked it. 
there's been so much love for this film. There's been such an outpouring of a love. A lot of hype. And a huge amount of hype. But there's also been a number of people saying, wow, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. It became the number one film of all time on Letterboxd, etc. So I don't know if I'm being impacted upon in being a little bit more negative than I might otherwise have been by that avalanche of hype. But I thought it was good. <laughs> you know, like, I thought it was a huge improvement on Swiss Army Man, which oh, you, uh, yeah. we can... I, I won't drag us back into one of our biggest ever film fights. Because that was... Yeah, that was one of Glenn's favorite films and me and... Of all time. Of all time. Well, me and, no, one of my favorite films of the decade, let's be fair. Right. Well, a decade is still a long time. Oh, if you're 30, Varat. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's similar to the hype that's happening for everything everywhere all at once right now, right? Number one film on Letterboxd, Florence Pugh, SCA, other people saying like, oh, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Yeah. I think as we were briefly discussing prior to recording this, I don't think I want to be drawn on this because I don't see the similarities between the films. I appreciate they're the same directors. I appreciate there are some bare basic artistic elements, but I think they're substantially different genres and films. I don't think they're comparable. In, in, just like a lot of Best Picture nominees aren't comparable and shouldn't be put up against each other. I think this is a much better vehicle for the Daniel's frenetic kind of style. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Then, yeah. The other, the other good thing which I love about this film, which I think is actually what carries the film, is the fact that it has a very big emotional center, you know, which the first film lacked. For me, it's Swiss Army Man. Well, Swiss Army Man was going for that, and Swiss Army it, Man that, completely missed the mark. The, the reason why I'll, yeah, I agree. The reason why I think these are similar is they both go for this big speechifying about the meaning of life, and they're both around this um, an emotionally. Uh, w- withdrawn or not not connecting with the people they love enough, sort of character rediscovering meaning, right? Um, but the the means to that end are very different. They're both about these big climaxes of big epiphanies, and it's conveyed through a lot of weird, goofy, sometimes scatological humor and uh, wacky, almost DIY special effects. I mean, in in a sense, it's they're both films about need for family, yes, or yep. at least need for human connection in some sense. Hmm. They both kind of try to do that. Hmm. This film succeeds a lot more than the other one. This film I, again. I don't feel we should be. I, I I do appreciate the similarities there. I don't think they're necessarily comparable. I do think this is a better vehicle. I think what key, really key difference here is that I agree there are huge epiphanies at the end of this. But what made it great and really distinctive is that the epiphanies and the realizations and the resolutions and the morals we're left with are normalistic. They're not grand in the sense that we're learning some grand new epic thing. We're learning some truth about the universe. They're basic simple truths which are conveyable and relatable like a lot of the key um, action scenes in this film which take place in very humdrum environments like an office and a laundromat place we go every day. Mm. And I liked that about it. More than that, just to note about um, how the characters interact, I do like how we see um, interactions about the film. What I liked is that the unlike Swasami Man, which I don't think is a dispersion on Swasami Man, I think this is just a natural thing that was also related about the film, but the characters, particularly the Michelle Yeoh character, for the core audience, particularly one who's so hyped about this, who are our age and for lack of a better, t- for I hate the term work, but whatever, mm-hmm. isn't actually a necessarily relatable or sympathetic or likable character. She's someone oh, yeah. who, Michelle Yeoh, she has a lot of, by many standards, negative aspects, which granted she comes to learn about throughout the film, but the filmmakers had the courage to show a character with many negative traits and show her, not all entirely, but in respects, grow. And I appreciated that. It's a midlife crisis movie and it's not afraid to show a bitter character because it's a story about a bitter character reconnecting with optimism, right? Through this kind of grand sci-fi adventure. It's you. It's interesting you mentioned The Matrix because it very much is a story about you are the chosen one, but instead of turning it into a power fantasy, it becomes yeah. uh, a story about learning to confront 
your weaknesses and your regrets in order in, to, to live up to that position. Like yeah. how the Doctor meets um, just ordinary people um, throughout the 70s and the whole run of Doctor Who and just and lives normal everyday lives and teaches them grand things about the universe that they apply to their regular life. It's great. Actually, I, I think uh, characterizing this as a multiverse film might be a misnomer, actually might be misleading slightly. Because well, I read that um, one of Daniel Kwan likes multiverse films and Daniel Shiner didn't. Yeah, okay, but in that, in that sense, because this film is not about the multiverse, it's it's it, that is, for me, that's window dressing. This, this movie film is very much about intergenerational connecting, uh, you know, with yes. a grandfather connecting with the second generation connecting with the third generation, and then trying to have a dialogue uh, without them understanding each other. I think that's the biggest problem. Uh, uh, the core issue of the film is that the different generations of people they don't know how to speak to each other. Yeah, and their problems are so internalized and they don't know how to actually externalize these problems and, and actually vocalize them and, and the multiverse becomes a vehicle for them to actually do that the multiverse becomes a, ba- a vehicle for visualizing the people you could have been the regrets you had and the, the different ways your life could have gone and as you say yes it's a story about intergenerational ethnic experience right yep. specifically that um that is directly relevant because it's about the ways life could have gone if you they uh michelle yao's family had not come to America, if she had not come to America and started a different life and the way she could have played her cards differently. And it's really important to specify how clearly the intergenerational conflict is drawn. Each of the characters are had their own peculiarities but are broad-based enough that they're incredibly relatable. And to the intergenerational cultural conflict, the use of language in this film is incredible. Importantly, the three generations of characters have varying comprehensions of different languages, including English. At the beginning of the film, we see characters and dialogue switching between um, English and Mandarin, it's great. That's how people speak regularly. Mm. Um, I wish that was reflected more in film. We certainly see it reflected here. Throughout the film, uh, we did see English take more of a central focus, but I liked when... But it's an American film. It's an American film. It's fine. Uh, but I, I liked the very natural and realistic interactions uh, towards the commencement of the film, and that more than anything else just said, here is this disharmony and disconnect between three people. You have the daughter who prefers generally to speak and does doing speak in English. You have the mom who um, speaks in both languages and will converse with her in both. And you have the, the grandfather who traditionally will speak in, in Mandarin. Yeah, that's great. And uh, all the performances are terrific. Really liked seeing seeing James Hong still in his nineties. Still is he in his nineties? Yeah, he's like oh, 90, he ninety three or something. And he has so much energy and gives such a great performance here. Um, Michelle Yao, as you probably heard, is amazing. She uh, gets to show off a huge amount of range that and usually... her physical skills, yeah, martial arts right. skills. The martial arts sequences are fantastic. That's right. Design. The real revelation of this film is Kehe Kwan, who played short round at, yes. in Temple of Doom oh. and Dada. In oh, the Goonies, I never picked it. And this oh, is his my return God. to acting after decades. He retired in the late '80s. Since then, he's done things like be stunt coordinator on a lot of Hollywood films and and Hong Kong films. He was also the assistant director on Wong Kar Wai's 2046. Of course, he was. Yeah, so he's had a really interesting career and uh, returns to acting here with a triumphant performance, which I think and in a lot of ways to, holds he gets the film to give together. A homage to Wong Kar Wai as well. He does. Yeah, there's an extended exactly. Wong Kar Wai homaging in one of the timelines in this multiverse. <laughs> Involving stuck, you know, lovers in the rain smoking, but um, oh yeah, great! It's all great. Look, let, let's let's talk about some of the multiverse scenes. This all starts with a tax agent talking about tax law. I'm a tax lawyer, and my job my job is is great, but it's not quite like this. So just to see these crazy multiverses come out 
of this was an enormous amount of fun to see um, action sequences sprout. Are you Glenn, that your job is more boring or less boring than the one how it's picturized? My job's not, actually not boring, but I've never gone into a multiverse that I'm allowed to talk about or fought someone in physical combat that I'm, again, allowed to talk about. The way that this sequence introduces us to the multiverse play with and the way that multiverses and universe hopping work in this film with Kehei Kwan's character, the husband of Michelle Yao, switching between this heroic alter ego and the middle-aged um schlubby kind of guy you know just typical dad he's playing um in his original incarnation uh is is brilliant brilliant screenwriting the fight that emerges is the highlight of the film and again gives kahir kwan a stunt coordinator and stuntman in another life a chance to show off what he can do uh the the choreography and uh framing and creative use of weird props in that scene uh as i was watching it struck me as what we should have seen in the matrix 4 um, it's, it's a more spiritual sequel, which actually, unlike Resurrections, which and we criticized for this reason, uh, didn't connect with issues we're facing today. Uh, this film is extremely zeitgeisty. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. But also at the same time, uh, I think this film is very much 80s Hong Kong action movies, like Jackie Chan 80s. Yes, physical comedy. Yeah, it brings a comedy styling back to the martial arts that you don't typically see in American martial arts exactly. films, but it's, it is the classic long, Hong Kong style. Long yeah. white takes, not, no hypercuts. Slapstick comedy. Yeah, Very well-timed slapstick comedy. foreground and background at the same time. Fantastic. We're, we're to be clear on the lo-fi aspects of these action sequences. They take place, like I said, in offices, in very normal environments, so they're limited by the physicality of the scenes, both in terms of the scale of the environment, but in terms of what is in the sequences for the purposes of projectiles and else. And there's amazing creative uses my favorite's probably outside the lift where he throws a pocket a patch a pocket yes that's, that's what i'm talking pocket. about that scene i just thought like this is that like, you are the one you have mastery of your environment so you can think of crazy stuff like whipping people with the bum bag perfect chinese dad yeah. weapon right i reference doc two because something i love about doc two is how they'd have actors come back in different roles and play crazy evil versions good versions granted the film we're not covering tonight apparently also does this but I liked that you had character. Every character, almost every character in this was playing multiple roles. Um, the actress who played the daughter was very, very good in a corridor scene and else. She gets to play uh, various incarnations of herself, um, that some of which allow for some Lady Gaga esque costuming and big. Yeah. Big acting. Yeah, this is the sort of thing you give to an actor. You think, wow, I want to do this. I honestly, I'm honestly going to say that's probably Jamie Lee Curtis's best performance to my reckoning. I really, Ever? I can't Better think of. True Lies. I think she's better in this than True Lies. She has, she has much more range than this than True Lies. True Lies uh, is a great action film. Oh, actually, ooh, that's tricky. I think she's funnier in A Fish Called Wanda, but I think the range of what she achieves in this is much more entertaining. Uh, I've never been the biggest fan of A Fish Called Wanda. I'm happy to discuss that another day. Okay. I, I, I guess I'll accept because she got to dip her fingers into a much more meaty role in this one. No pun intended. Can I be a sourpuss and talk about some of the things I didn't like about this film? I everyone's been praising it and including me and mm-hmm. it's good, right? It's I don't want to take this film be- down. Be- before before you kind of uh, dump on it, I yeah. will, I will say that Given the budget that Daniels had, oh, it's incredible! I, I think what they've pulled off is actually quite exceptional. Yeah. I'm hearing now some of the ways that they got this to the twenty-five million dollar budget they worked with. Apparently, the, all the visual effects shots are done by seven uh, music video directors, including the Daniels. Yeah, we're talking using like, After Effects, incredible. Yeah, we're talking like bewitched type transitions. Mm. We're talking creative use of light to depict people. fragmenting realities as yeah, well. Fra- yeah. And what are actually very readily available cuts and after effects, mm. which just aren't utilized in mainstream cinema. That's right. So it appears fresh, and it is fresh. Yeah. So the thing now is. Now you can dump on it. Yeah. Go for it. No, it, it's, I've got things to say too. Even as we talk about that, 
it's drawing up what I kind of don't like about it. It's extremely intricately put together. You know, hats off to the skill at coordinating this script and all the little pieces that have to be edited together as we go into multiversal madness towards the end. And it lives up to its name in that regard, everything, everywhere, all at once. This film is assaulting you with all kinds of different scenarios and fast edits. And maybe to take us full circle to where we began the show, I'm just getting old, right? But to uh, to its credit, what I did like about this film, which is very hard to do, actually, given the multiple timelines, mm. I never felt lost. I never felt that the film lacked an emotional center, which it was difficult given the leap from Swiss Army Man, where I felt so emotionally lost. It's a big step up from that. Where I didn't care about any of the characters. I felt in this film, I had a very uh, big emotional connect to each of the characters. Okay, interesting. I did care, but I don't think I cared as much as I needed to for the really grandiose emotional culmination to work. And I think it's partly because of this everything, everywhere, all at once style where there's so much cross-cutting that I think a lot of the important emotional moments aren't given a chance to resonate because the film is constantly trying to impress you with its construction. I kind of get a little bit of a desperateness to be liked vibe from a lot of aspects of the film. I'd extend that to the humor where sometimes it's funny, but sometimes it's trying really hard with some of the gags. And for some reason, there's a need to culminate all of them instead of just letting a wacky thing be in the climax when I really would have appreciated some more time to let the emotional moments breathe. I think more than that, the Lionel two acts just are much quicker. And this is when the emotional side of its parts come in. Okay, want to learn something now. The first act, which is much longer, is designed to wow us. I'm um, similar to the Matrix films, but there again, those were better paced in terms of delivering action throughout. I think key here is that there is a huge refrain that lasts about 20 even longer minutes where characters moralize and there's ways to left with things. Um, we, I keep bringing it back to the Matrix, but the Matrix ended so simply. Morpheus said, I'm going to ruin the Matrix here. He is the one. He wakes up, he kisses Trinity. He delivers a great 30-second speech via the phone and flies off to rage against the machine. Yep. Perfect. This film could have been that. It could have ended 20 minutes early and honestly been much more memorable. And that's it. Sometimes less is more, right? Um, I get that maximalism is the name of the day here. And sometimes I have enjoyed re- extremely fast-paced movies going with a big bam wow, but something about that style coupled with the ambition to tell a story about everything and human nature and everyone's experience on which i think all that speechifying doesn't go over as well as the more specific stuff about the intergenerational identity i agree i mean without giving anything away there is something that the film sets up about intergenerational trauma and addressing it in a very interesting way that it doesn't follow through i think the the climax in the end kind of cops out on that and it makes it into a much more of a Disney ready for Marvel yeah. oh you know kumbaya let's, uh, let's it's come very together for a hug yeah there's something rather than setting up something deep and actually quite interesting which is going for for much of the film I think it was actually a lot more inventive and in actually addressing something especially in uh, I know from <laughs> South Asian perspective as well in Asian circles talking about something which is not really talked about right and actually bringing that to the surface and what you say of this kumbaya ending I'm all for a triumphant, life-affirming message, but something about the incessantness of this and the way it plays out over this cross-cutting, let's bring back all the wacky joke multiverses to show them inching towards uh, our preferred ending um, presentation style that made it ring a little bit 
false. Like every bit of genuine spontaneity of it had been wrung out already and, and we're watching the pre-digested ver- mechanical delivery of it. Okay, where I defend the film on that front, we're looking to the morality of the film that seems to try to present more than necessarily the style or pacing itself. Mm. I think... As was said earlier, this film is incredibly zeitgeisty. I think if you brought out this film 20, 15, maybe even 10 years ago, it would have been seen as, oh, shucks, you're really trying to have a happy ending and teach us all the Freud is good. But I love how much this film is a repost to a lot of very popular media out there. And I'll say especially Rick and Morty. I made the comparison earlier. Rick Mm -hmm. and Morty uses a similar premise with the multiverse, but the view of Mick and Morty, alternately, which is a very big majority of people who watch this film and a very big part of cultural cachet right now, is nihilism, that there's so much that life is meaningless. This film applies the same premise and situation and idea of the multiverse, but conversely says that everything has matter. And I think there's actually enormous value in that right now. I think if it wasn't tapping into the zeitgeist and being so contrary to what else we want to see, it's very easy to make a negative point. It's not hard to make a positive point like that, especially with these sorts of motifs. So I give the film credit for that. I think it wouldn't have worked if it came out as well if it came out even a few years ago, but I think it works incredibly well now. I think it's very much a post-COVID film. I I I was thinking the same, yeah. It's coming out of that kind of Complete nihilism is exactly the word for Climate it. change doom as yeah. well. And just the doom know. in terms of, you know, where are we going? Does anything matter? Does anything make sense? Yes. Uh, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. There's, you know, and in, in, in that sense, I think the film is trying to really leave you with a much more hopeful message than just letting it go and letting you sort of believe that nothing matters. But at the same time, it is tapping into something real. And mm. the film lets go of that reality in terms of what it sort of touches there, kind of like, you know, it's too afraid to go there. It's almost as if it taps into something which is quite obvious. Well, it's insistent on being extremely happy as opposed to sort of bittersweet or... Or genuinely sad because, you know, uh, some of the timelines work really well with the genuine sadness because, as we've discussed, this film keeps going back and forth about Mm. what could have been. But as I was saying earlier, there's a need to pay off every single one of these little timelines, which makes the film really padded out as we keep saying the climax just goes on forever Mm. we could it's fine to let little what-ifs resonate as what-ifs and let them be a little sad or whatever instead of needing to take them all to a happy ending but that's also i think this film is such a good example of that because eventually you kind of realize that we're living in uh, in that kind of world where uh, we're not allowed to feel sadness where we have to be happy all the time Turning to the production design of the film, another element that the low budget really leans into. The reason I referenced Doc 2 earlier is that they had to make great use of these sets. I, I love- thought of that, yeah, the, the really awesome 70s, like we're inside a uh, cheap little vehicle. But like it works for the it's, budget. But it, it does, it's, it does. it's more than that. It's like you look at the old Star Trek and when they had low budgets, some universes looked very different to other universes because they wanted, and the low budget could emphasize this is a different place, a different time, a situation, a different realm. So the low budget, there's a lot of expectations now with big budget films, particularly Marvel films, everything has to look perfect and pristine. Whereas here, it clearly looked like, yeah, they just put the set together and that's fine because it worked for the different universes and setting us up in different spaces with different expectations and different laws of reality. So I liked that. There's one particular scene in a grand white ballroom where um, the daughter has a really good opportunity to just act um, absolutely over the top and it's wonderful there are several sequences like that so I liked the film for that it just again current for leaning into and making best use of the budget and saying not saying we can't do this because it may look 
technically better in other films, but you know what? Not relying on visual effects entirely made it more realistic and just easier to watch. I could sit through this, even though it was long, I could sit for two hours and 20 minutes of this because my eyes didn't get tired because a lot of it was very real or at least looked real. I agree with you. I do need to give props to the way it's made and in trying to push us more to a suspension of disbelief model where everything doesn't need to look perfect again. Um, like I, I, we were, yeah, those, those low budget uh, sci-fi visual effects are good enough honestly it's good enough to suspend your disbelief I think, I think comp- compare this with uh, what we're missing today deliberately by the way the multiverse of madness Doctor Strange mm. sitting to two and a half hours of that which has like incessant CGI but the, th- the thing about this is unlike we basically know without having seen that film uh, Doctor Strange this is fresh right this yes. film feels fresh my issues with it come so in so I'm just saying comparatively if I had the same time uh, you know runtime, which right. probably they're quite similar in their runtime. the problem is I'd prefer to watch this over that any day I think the problem for me overall with this film is that it uses its wacky cards that initially seem very fresh a lot over the two hour and twenty minute runtime. did you by the end feel a little bit annoyed by some of the tone of the humor i don't know if it's just me that found it to be so desperate it it wasn't so much the tone it was the repetition Mm. and i'll just note regarding the idea of it being fresh and and the length and visual effects i think when you have a very large budget you emphasize the creative visual aspects as the Raimi film no doubt will versus the physicality. It's not like there's a Venn diagram, but it's what invariably happens. This film had a lean to the physicality. Good, it had great physical actors. The physicality stands out because we've seen a lack of it in recent years as everything's gone towards CGI. But what I mean about the humor, it's, I don't know, there's a bit about Ratatouille. I I get what you're trying to get at, which is that the humor is too rehearsed yeah the, it the, feels too workshop that's it a, a lot of things about the film feel lacking in spontaneity a little bit too perfect like yeah. the, the, there's a ratatouille bit which um yeah. seemed to get a big laugh in my screening but to me it just doesn't work as a joke at all because i can't buy into the foundation of this belief which is that someone would think ratatouille was called rukukuni i'm yeah, really I mean, you have, perspective yeah, you, when it comes to humor that it, like for, if i can't believe someone would if you don't if you don't bel- buy the setup then you then, don't uh, buy then, the punchline basically so whenever jokes are presented that way it becomes a problem if their delivery is protracted and this film pulls a trick where what is initially presented as a goofy joke is tr- then turned into a really serious meaningful which um, was actually message. Uh, one of the one of the best parts of the I film i thought actually. at some points it was working but it felt really overlabored to me think well that... it goes, goes with the title of the film everything everywhere all at once yeah again i I don't think it's a matter of the jokes being unfunny i just think there's elements of the writing that are so recurring they think it's always funny and it's not when you've seen elements or the setup more than the joke itself the setup belabor because i would think the style of humor of this film is one of the least fresh things about it rick and morty is the obvious comparison right yeah Yeah, but i I still liked it i mean uh i would say that's that's quite a nitpick so given given that it's, it's not a small This time around, we were actually... Yeah. yeah. Because it, it applies not just to this one little joke that I used as an example. Yeah. It's kind of how I felt with a lot of the gags in it, that I felt like there was a desperation to go for the big wacky joke when sometimes it's not... Yes, but at the same time, I thought this, was more, uh, this was more sentimental in the right way. It didn't feel as re- you know forced and labored as Swiss Army Man did. Again, I don't agree with the comparison, <laughs> but I made my point on that. This is everything, everywhere, all at once. It is go in cinemas it. now. We recommend it. Yeah, look, I liked it. I would just say don't go in expecting the greatest movie of all time or whatever. The no, mega it's hype good. It's good. Saying. It's different. It's distinct. And importantly, right now, it's relevant. True. And look, if that gets people to go out there and go to the movies and see a non-Marvel movie, then I guess I can't complain too much. 
So the Fantastic Film Festival is screening now, the Spanish Film Festival and the Breath of Fresh Air Film Festival, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, the Sydney World Film Festival, Setting Sun, the Sydney South African Film Festival and the Kino Short Film Night is this weekend. We, we will be back next week with more movies in studio. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans and Virat Nehru. Have a wonderful and safe night and enjoy movies. Good night. Bye. Bye.